Well, good evening again. <laughs> How was church? It's my privilege to open the scriptures with you tonight, and I want to invite you to turn your Bibles with me to Judges chapter 7, as we will dive into chapter 7 and chapter 8 in their entirety. So, fasten your safety belts. We have nowhere else to go tonight, so uh, we're going to settle in for the long haul, all right? Um, as we continue our study, we're uh, continuing to move through the book of Judges and our series, Christ in You, the Hope of Judges. And the reason uh, we entitled the series that is, uh, as we've already seen, and we're about to step into some more stuff tonight, and there is only more to come after this, there's some deep, dark stuff in the book of Judges. Uh, human depravity is on full display, uh, but the hope in the midst of all that darkness is the light of Christ yet shines. And so even as we interpret current day events in light of uh, what is happening around us, as we look at the scriptures, there is a word from the Lord for us today. Amen. As we step into the next installment of our journey through the book of Judges, instead of looking to the next judge, uh, today we're going to pick up where we left off last week with Gideon's story. You see, all that we explored, all that we, had, all that we learned, all that God showed us from chapter 6 was just the beginning. Let me bring you up to speed, or perhaps you'll remember if, you're, if you were with us last week, uh, Israel was once again being judged by God because of their sin. Chapter 6 opens with that familiar refrain, which I think probably by the end of this study, we might be able to vocalize this in concert together. But the refrain is, the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. <laughs> that is uh, something that's repeated over and over and over again with each episode. Now, when the people cried out to God for help, wondering if or why he had forsaken them, God sent a prophet to them to declare why they were suffering under the hand of the Midianites. If you might remember it, you'll look at it with me uh, from chapter 6, beginning at verse 7. He, the prophet, said to them, this is what the Lord God says, the Lord God of Israel says, I brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the place of slavery. I rescued you from the power of Egypt and the power of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear or worship the gods of the Amorites whose land you live in. But you did not obey me. Theologians would say that the book of Judges is a sermon or an exposition of sorts on the book of Deuteronomy, which is the second giving of the law, and it's also Moses' parting message or his parting sermon to the people of Israel. Now, one of the primary themes of Deuteronomy is that of blessing and judgment. Now, a few years ago, I had uh, the privilege of discipling some guys while they were in high school, and as we committed to read through the Bible together one year, the plan that we used to guide us through that process was set up in such a way that it would have us uh, once a quarter do what it described as a one-sit reading. Uh, some of you have kind of heard this before, uh, but just to kind of give you context of, of what's going on in Deuteronomy. Uh, and so Deuteronomy was the very first assignment. First quarter, we sat down somewhere around March. We carved out pretty much all day Saturday. We sat down at about 10 o'clock, and we started reading from Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 1, and we didn't finish Deuteronomy until about 10 p.m. that night. 
<laughs> it was an awesome experience because four of us were sitting uh, reading through the text of the scripture. Our purpose wasn't to study. Our purpose wasn't to analyze anything. We were purely reading the text. And the plan designed it that way because there's some uh, books that you can kind of lose the, lose the forest for the trees. Is that how the expression goes? Uh, you can get so bogged down in the weeds, so to speak, that you really miss the broader picture that God is painting. You, you miss the broader message that God is speaking and what he's doing in the lives of his people. So Deuteronomy was the first one that we sat down and we read in its entirety. Now we did take breaks through there. We took a lunch break, dinner break, all that stuff. But we read Deuteronomy for about 12 hours that day. Now, one of the things that I walked away being struck with was the number of times that God said to the people of Israel, if you obey me, I will bless you. But if you disobey me, I will judge you. If you obey me, I'll bless you. But if you disobey me, I'll judge you. And I believe the book of Judges is a running narrative of this pattern. God being true to his word, that when the Israelites repented, when they cried out for help, he would provide a deliver, they would repent, and he would begin to bless them, and he would bless them with peace, he would bless them with prosperity. But every time they begin to slip back into sin, slip back into apostasy, slip back into idolatry, he would judge them. As the people cried out, God provided yet another deliverer. This time, as we saw last week, his name was Gideon. And he was an unlikely character uh, to be chosen by God to deliver his people uh, from their enemy oppressors. Uh, remember some things about Gideon. He was from the tribe of Manasseh, which was a pretty small tribe, kind of unseeming, um, not really known for a whole lot. Not only that, but he was the weak, he was, his family was the weakest of the tribe of Manasseh. So not only is he from a small and weak tribe, but he's from the weakest family of that tribe. Uh, he was the youngest in his family, which means he definitely wouldn't have been the first one chosen to lead a charge of any sort, especially that of delivering Israel from the Midianites. He was so fearful when we meet him that we find him uh, threshing wheat in a wine press, <laughs> an unlikely place for you to thresh wheat because it's underground. There's no airflow. Uh, there's no way for the chaff to blow away. But he's there because he's fearful of the Midianite oppressors and he's hiding from them. Gideon is also a doubter. There is no time in which he believes God the very first time he says something to him. He needs affirmation and confirmation over and over and over again. He's also reluctant to obey. And when he does, he does so in such a way, not that he's trying to uh, make sure God gets the glory. What, what Gideon is trying to do is make sure he doesn't suffer the consequences of his obedience. As in when God instructed him to go into his father's house and to his home down and tear down all of the idols, tear down the Baal and the Asherah poles and to offer a sacrifice. Well, Gideon did it. He did it very reluctantly, but he did it by night so that nobody would see him and catch him. And then when he finally gets to the place where he begins to rally troops to step into this battle and deliver Israel from the Midianites, he is still yet reluctant and asks twice through laying out a fleece that God would affirm the word that he spoke to him. Well, all of that brings us to our text tonight in chapter 7, where the first thing we see is God confounding Gideon by doing the most unconventional thing when it comes to wartime strategy. He begins to thin the herd of soldiers before they go into battle. He is distilling Gideon's army. 
But he, know he, ha- he knows he has to do this because he knows Israel's heart. And the best thing that God could do for them was to make sure they knew who delivered them. Let's take a look at the passage, chapter 7 of Judges, beginning at verse 1. And it reads, Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the troops who were with him got up early and camped beside the spring of Herod. The camp of Midian was north of them, below the hill of Moreh in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, you have too many troops for me to hand the Midianites over to them, or else Israel might elevate themselves over me and say, my own strength saved me. Now announce to the troops, Whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back and leave Mount Gilead. So 22,000 of the troops turned back, but 10,000 remained. Now, in this moment, God is putting forth a test of fortitude by having Gideon invite the men to be honest about how they feel about going into battle. He says, for whoever is fearful and trembling may turn back. Essentially, Gideon, I want you to go out. I want you to say, hey, hey, guys, hey, if anybody is afraid, you're free to go home. And I'm sure there was probably some kind of like audible gasp in the in the crowd. I mean, there there are 32,000 soldiers gathered. And when when Gideon says that, there's probably like this. "Okay, I'm out. And 22,000 men took off and went home. That's a lot of guys. That's two-thirds of his army. Now, I think God did this for Israel, and he does this kind of thing for us even today because he wants to display his power of deliverance in such a way that we would turn and worship him and not try to take credit for the victories won in our lives. I think this is exactly the kind of thing Paul is getting at in Ephesians chapter 2 when he says this, beginning at verse 1, and you... You, pointing the finger at myself here too, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you previously lived according to the ways of this world, according to the ruler of the power of the air, the spirit now working in the, in the disobedient. We too all previously lived among them in our fleshly desires, carrying out the inclinations of our flesh and thoughts, and we were by nature children under wrath as the others were also. But God, that's the good news of the gospel right there, y'all. But God, who is rich in mercy because of his great love that he had for us, made us alive with Christ, even though we were dead in trespasses. You have been saved by grace. Let me say that again. You have been saved by grace. He also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For you are saved by grace through faith and this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift, not from works. Why? So that no one can boast. Even God's working of salvation in our lives has been done in such a way that he and he alone gets the glory and gets the credit for it, and we can take absolutely none. Now, I think another thing that we find here in this, in this section is that if given the easy way out, just like these soldiers, more oftentimes than not, we will take it. I think about something as simple as showing mercy to those around us. You know, we live in a city of such great need, 
And how many times do we, we simply opt out, take the easy way out by passing by and ignoring, as if they aren't there, ignoring people who are in need, oftentimes crying out to us for help. Now, granted, a lot of times we just don't know what to do in that moment. What is the best thing or the right thing to do? I don't know if giving them what they're asking for is what is going to be the best thing or the most helpful thing. But let me just encourage you to do at the very least this. Honor the image of God in that individual in front of you by taking time to look at them, look them in the eye. And even if you you don't know what to do or if you don't have what it is they're asking for, at least look them in the eye, show them dignity as an image bearer of God and let them know that. Don't just ignore them and pass them by. To do so is to take the easy way out. And I guarantee you, if you took the moment and the time to do that, that is probably more than 99% of the people who have passed them on any given day have done. And you don't know what God might do in that moment, in your heart, in their life, providing for a need, or at the very least knowing, letting them know that they're significant, that they have value as a human being because you took the time to look at them and speak to them. I think another way that we take the easy way out is by not pressing into or cultivating relationship with those who are closest to us, our colleagues or our neighbors. If you live uh, in a neighborhood or perhaps even in a building like I do, I've got uh, about 14 other neighbors. We pass each other at the mailbox, in the hallways, in the garage. The easiest thing to do is to take the easy way out by just exchanging pleasantries but not pressing in beyond that. But in doing so, we fail to realize that showing a kindness or extending hospitality might be the very thing that would be an opening of the door of the gospel to their lives. Don't take the easy way out. Press in because God might do great and extraordinary things through those small moments. But God wasn't finished with Gideon's army just yet. Let's continue reading at verse 4. It says, Then the Lord said to Gideon, There are still too many troops. Take them down to the water and I will test them for you there. If I say to you, this one can go with you, he can go. But if I say about anyone, this one cannot go with you, he cannot go. So he brought the troops down to the water and the Lord said to Gideon, separate everyone who laps water with his tongue like a dog. Do the same with everyone who kneels to drink. The number of those who lapped with their hand to their mouth was 300 men and all the rest of the troops knelt to drink water. This is one of those moments where you take a deep breath, you gulp and say, "Uh uh-oh. Then the Lord said to Gideon, I will deliver you with the 300 men who lapped and hand the Midianites over to you. But everyone else, everyone else is to go home. So Gideon sent all the Israelites to their tents, but he kept the 300 troops who took the provisions and their trumpets. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. Now, what I find interesting about this selection process is that that God told Gideon before he administered the test from the outset, if I say to you that this one can go with you, then he can go. But if I say of any of them that this one or he cannot go, This is not up for debate. This is not up for discussion. He can't go. So Gideon had to commit to trust God in who he would choose to fight for and to fight with him. And I think the lesson for us in this is that we must also be committed to trusting God to provide and to build the community that we need 
as we journey through this life, as we fight the good fight of faith. Instead of wasting time wishing and hoping that this or that person would be a part of my life or would be in my missional community or would be in our church and thinking and imagining that, man, we could be so much better or we could do so many great things for God if only they would join us. Instead of doing that, we need to press in to the community that God has given us, that we need to rally as a faith family around the mission and the vision that he has given us to make much of the gospel of Jesus Christ and magnifying it and seeing it more multiplied through this city to the very ends of the earth, pressing into relationships, believing that lives flourish in gospel-saturated relationships. And as we do that, as we press into the community that God has given us, Jesus will do exactly what he said he would do, and that is to build his church. See, Gideon had to commit to trust that God knew what he was doing from the very outset. I'm sure as Gideon looked at the 10,000 men who were left, he probably had more than 300 in mind that would be going into battle with him. And the 300 that he, more than 300 that he had in mind, he probably didn't even have the 300 men that God gave him on his radar. But I believe God clues us into his process of choosing and how it is so much different than ours. In 1 Samuel 16, we find the story of how uh, God sends the prophet priest Samuel to the house of Jesse. If you are familiar with the story, uh, you would know that Jesse is the father of David, who was the second king of Israel. God is sending Samuel, the prophet priest, to anoint David because Saul has disqualified himself. And I'll tell you a little bit about that in a moment. But as Samuel goes to the house, he meets Jesse, and Jesse knows who he is because he's the prophet in Israel. He's the one who is speaking to the people, representing God to the people. And so Jesse knows who Samuel is, and he's honored to have him in his house. And so as, as Samuel comes in, he's like, let me fix you something to eat. Come in, sit down, make yourself at home, make yourself comfortable. What is it that you need? <laughs> and Samuel says, well, I've come to anoint the next king of Israel, and he's coming from your house. Do you have any sons? Do I have sons? I have sons. Several, let me begin to bring them in. And one by one, Jesse's sons begin to come in. And at, at, at each one of them, as they walk through the door, Samuel is convinced, he's sure, this is the next king of Israel. But as soon as he says that in his heart, God says, nope, he's not the one. The next son comes in, nope, he's not the one. The next one comes in, nope, he's not the one. Gets all the way down to there only being David left. And David is somewhere way out yonder, tending sheep. And Jesse says, well, I've got one more, but he's not the, the likely suspect, I don't think. Well, early in the process, as Jesse's sons are walking through the door, what God says to Samuel is this, don't look at his appearance, at any of their appearance or at their stature, because I've rejected him. I've rejected all of them. Humans do not see what the Lord sees, for humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. God saw something in these men, which is why he chose them and not the other 32,000 <laughs> to go with Gideon into battle. God chose them for a specific reason, and I don't think it was just because of the way they drank water. That was an external manifestation of something that God was seeing in the heart. But Gideon's story continues. Now, even though he's been assured of victory several times already, and by several times, I mean he's been assured of victory in uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 14. 
He's been assured of victory in chapter 6, verse 16, in chapter 6, verse 38, in chapter 6, verse 40. Do you see a pattern here? He's been assured of victory in chapter 7, verse 7. Even though God has assured him that he is going to give him victory over the Midianites, God knew that he was still reluctant to obey. Let's take a look at the passage again and read beginning at verse 9 of chapter 7. That night the Lord said to him, said to Gideon, get up and attack the camp, for I have handed it over to you. Another assurance. But if you're afraid to attack the camp, go down with Pura, your servant. Listen to what they say, and then you'll be encouraged to attack the camp. So he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the troops who were in the camp. Now the Midianites, Amalekites, and all the Chemadites had settled down in the valley like a swarm of locusts, i.e. there were a lot of them. And their camels were as innumerable as the sand on the seashore. I think the first time we hear of anything being as numerous or innumerable as the sand on the seashore uh, takes place in Genesis when God is instituting his covenant with Abraham. And he says that his descendants, if he would go to the place that he was going to show him, he would make him a great nation and his descendants would be as innumerable as the sands on the seashores. Now, this army has so many camels that it says that they are as innumerable as the sands on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling his friend about a dream. He said, listen, I had a dream. A loaf of barley bread came tumbling into the Midianite camp, struck a tent, and it fell. The loaf turned the tent upside down so that it collapsed. And using my sanctified imagination, as my pastor growing up would say, I would imagine his friend didn't skip a beat. He's like, hmm, I know what that means. This is nothing less than the sword of Gideon, son of Joash the Israelite. God has handed the Midianite camp over to him. The good news here is that God is gracious and he is patient with Gideon as he is with us. Though he is still reluctant and fearful to believe and obey the word of the Lord. And before you judge Gideon too harshly, we would do the exact same. He's just like us. You see, it was God who extended the invitation for Gideon to go down to the Midianite camp if he was afraid and God knew he was afraid. But he knew that if he went down and overheard what his enemy said, that he would also be assured once again of victory. I think if we would only first and foremost believe God when he tells us something the first time, But if we would take God at his word and what he says about himself, if we will take God at his word and what he says he has done, his work, his accomplishment on our behalf, and if we would take God at his word and what he says about us, we would begin to live lives with such confidence, with such faith, that we'd be doing all kind of great and extraordinary things for the glory of God. But it begins by believing what God says. It makes me think about uh, the story in Numbers when uh, the 12 spies go into uh, the promised land. And as they come back, 10 of them have this this ominous report. There There is... no way we can do this. There are giants in the land. Like, man, it is, it's beautiful. I mean, it's flowing with milk and honey. There's all kinds of resources. But man, the people there are ginanimous. 
They would crush us like ants. And there were these two guys, these two spies, Joshua and Caleb. And God ended up using them to lead his people into the land, to take conquest of the land. He already told them he was going to give them. But it came down to, to them just saying, listen, whose report are you going to believe? God has already said he's giving us this land. He is going to give us the victory. All we've got to do is go in and take it. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter who's there. Who are you going to believe? You're going to believe what God says, or you're going to believe what your circumstances depict. And I believe this is the same for Gideon. He cannot believe anything other than what his eyes are seeing, even though God is telling him over and over and over and over again that I will give you victory. So he overhears the enemies. And what we need to know is that our enemy, Satan, knows that he is a defeated foe. He knows that he is, his time is limited, that he cannot wreak the havoc that he would actually desire to wreak in our lives. But his greatest tactic is to keep us deceived, to, to, to keep us convinced as to otherwise. But our great weapon given to us by God is his word. To know who we are, to know who he is, to know what he has done, and to know that greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. Check out Romans chapter 8, verse 31 with me. I want to put this before you and ask a question afterwards. Paul writes, what then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. <laughs> Everybody say no. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How would you live differently if you truly believed this? If your heart wrapped around this passage, what kind of risk might you be willing to take knowing that there is nothing, there is nothing in all the created order that can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus? Or take Colossians chapter 1, 13 and 14, where it says this, he, God, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him, in this son, in Jesus, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. If you were to wrap your heart around these truths, that you've been transferred from the domain of darkness into the kingdom 
of the son God loves and that in him you have redemption, the forgiveness of your sin. If you were to wrap your heart around that, how might you respond when confronted with the, the issues, the activities of your past? Maybe you go home or you uh, go to a place and you run into people that you used to run with and you used to get into trouble with, so to speak, and they begin to recount who you used to be, not knowing who you are now in Christ. How do you, how do you handle that? How, what do you, how do you respond when you're confronted with that? Well, I would hope wrapping your heart around this, it would be, I'm not that person anymore. I've been transferred from from one kingdom to the other. And I have forgiveness for all the wrong I did, for all the things that we did together. I have been redeemed from that and I have forgiveness from that and God can do that for you too. Let me tell you about Jesus. Hope that would be our response. Knowing and believing the word of God makes all the difference. It did for Gideon and it does for us today. Now, the story continues. Uh, we begin to see Gideon acting with courage against the Midianites. Let's read beginning at verse 15 all the way through 23. When Gideon heard the account of the dream and its interpretation, he bowed and worshiped. He returned to Israel's camp and said, get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Then he divided the 300 men into three companies and gave each of the men a trumpet in one hand and an empty pitcher with a torch inside it in the other. Watch me, he said to them, and do what I do. When I come out to the outpost of the camp, do as I do. When I and everyone with me blow our trumpets, you are also to blow your trumpets all around the camp. Then you will say, for the Lord and for Gideon. Gideon and the 300 men who were and the and the 100 men who were with him went to the outpost of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch after the sentries had been stationed. They blew their trumpets and broke the pictures that were in their hands. The three companies blew their trumpets and shattered their pictures. They held their torches in their left hand and their trumpets in their right and shouted, "A sword for the Lord and for Gideon." Each Israelite took his position around the camp. Notice that, around the camp, and the entire Midianite army began to run, and they cried out as they fled. When Gideon's men blew their 300 trumpets, the Lord caused the men and the whole army to turn on each other with their swords. They fled to Acacia House in the direction of Zerah as far as the border of Abel Meholah near Tabith. And then the men of Israel were called from Naphtali, Asher, Manasseh, and they pursued the Midianites. Now, I think it's important to notice and to note, first and foremost, Gideon's response when hearing, when embracing, when once again, and perhaps for the last time, being assured of the truth of what God had already declared. His response was to worship. You see, worship is the proper response to revelation. Anytime we open the scriptures and God, by his grace, by the help of the Holy Spirit, opens our eyes to see truth, our response should be that of worship. And the greatest act of worship is that of obedience. It's not the lifting of our hands. It's not the lifting of our voices. It's not the bowing of our heads. It is the bowing of our heart in obedience to Jesus. Jesus states it so simply in John chapter 14, verse 15, that if you love me, 
then keep my commandments. If you express that you love me and you're not keeping my commandments, you're, you don't love me. To love me is to obey me. You see, the very thing that would disqualify King Saul, the very first king of Israel, was an act of disobedience. <laughs> and it wasn't just one, by the way. There were multiple acts of, of disobedience. But finally, he disobeyed, and God sends the prophet Samuel, who he sent to Jesse's house to anoint the next king. He sends Samuel to confront Saul for what he had done. And what Samuel says to him in chapter 15, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, verse 22, he says, does the Lord take pleasure in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? See, Saul wanted to offer these sacrifices. He, he was to uh, not keep any spoils from a particular battle that he had gone in, and he didn't obey God to the fullest extent. And what he, what he thought would be pleasing to the Lord was to keep the best of the ram and the sheep and the bulls and to offer them as a fragrant sacrifice before the Lord. But when, when, when Samuel shows up, he says, what, what is this I hear? What is this, the bleeding of sheep? What? Well, well hold up, Samuel. This is what I was doing. So going to offer this awesome sacrifice to the Lord. And what Samuel says, God doesn't want your burnt sacrifices. What he wants is your obedience. And God laid that out already to his people in Deuteronomy. If you bless, if you obey me, I will bless you. And in us obeying, submitting our hearts to King Jesus, what he promises to do in return is to bless us. But I also want you to notice the air of confidence that Gideon seems to exude when he returns to the camp. Get up, for the Lord has handed the Midianite camp over to you. Now, this is the very thing God's been saying to him all along, right? Get up, Gideon. Go. I'm going to do this. And after being assured over and over and over and over again, interestingly, he's heard it from the mouth of God several times. But after hearing it from the mouth of his enemy, that his enemy has already realized they're going to be defeated, then all of a sudden, man, I've got this great confidence. Guys, let's go. Get up. Get up. God's going to give us victory. God's been saying this all along. He's finally convinced of what God's been telling him, and now he's ready to lead the charge. So he devises a plan, and it's perfectly executed. But listen, their victory is not at all because of Gideon's military prowess. This victory is God's and God's alone. What we can take away from this is that God will fight our battles and secure the victory when we walk in faith in the direction that he's calling us to go. And that's just what Gideon and the 300 men finally got up to do. And God delivered the Midianites just as he said he would. Now, as chaos ensues in the Midianite camp and those who weren't killed began to retreat, Gideon calls for backup. Let's take a look. Chapter 7, verse 24. Gideon sent messengers throughout the hill country of Ephraim with this message. Come down to intercept the Midianites and take control of the water courses ahead of them as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim came, were called out, and they took control of the water courses as far as Beth Barah and the Jordan. They captured Orab and Zeb, the two princes of Midian. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb and Zeb at the winepress of Zeb while they were pursuing the Midianites. And they brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon across the Jordan as a sign of proof. Hey, we got the job done. Now, I don't want it to be lost on you that uh, last week when we met Gideon, 
Remember, we found him threshing wheat in a wine press. And interestingly, it comes back full circle that when uh, Zeb, when this prince of Midian is killed, he's killed at the wine press of Zeb. And don't let it be lost on us that when Gideon offers a sacrifice before the angel of the Lord, also in chapter 6, that sacrifice is received beside a rock. And Orab is killed at the rock of Orab. See, God brings these things full circle in his timing because he is a God of justice. Reading on in chapter 8, the men of Ephraim said to him, why have you done this to us? Not calling us when you went to fight against the Midianites. And they argued with him violently. So he said to them, what have I done now compared to you? Is not the gleaning of Ephraim better than the, the grape harvest of Abiezer? Are not your scraps greater than our whole grape harvest? God handed over to you Orep and Zeb, the two Midian princes. What was I able to do compared to you? And when he said this, their anger against him subsided. Now, in this moment, after acting courageously against the Midianites, we see Gideon acting rather diplomatically with Ephraim. Instead of stirring their anger further, because they're, they're upset, <laughs> they're upset they didn't, they didn't get called to the fight, and we'll talk about that in a moment, Gideon pacifies them by pointing out that they were the ones who killed Zeb and Orab. He didn't have anything to do with that. He and his men didn't have anything to do with that. Now, there's good reason why Gideon wants to pacify them. He doesn't want to go to task with them because Ephraim is one of Israel's strongest tri tribes, both economically and militarily. So you see, Ephraim, they weren't angry for being left out of the action, for not being called to the fight because they could really help. What Ephraim wanted was the glory from the victory. They were upset that he didn't call them to fight with them so that when the victory was won, they could take credit for it. Didn't God know that was Israel's heart from the very beginning? Isn't that why God began to strip the army from 32,000 down to 300 men? God delivered this victory in such a way that he and he alone would receive the glory. And I think he does that in our lives even today. You see, there are times in which we are following the call of God on our life. We are uh, moving along a certain path that God is calling us toward. And people might come along and say, hey, why didn't you, why didn't you tell me about that? I could have helped. I could have been in on that. I, I could have, I wanted to be a part of that. You, some would even spiritualize it. Man, you, you cut me off from a blessing. When in fact, they didn't want to be a part of, of that for the sake of being in on the blessing. What they wanted was to be in on the glory. And God and God alone is jealous for his glory. He does things in our lives in such a way that he and he alone deserves the glory. And what we are to do is to walk the path that he calls, to, calls us to in humility and faithfulness and walk that path in the way he calls us to walk it so that he would receive the glory for every victory won in our life. This was the issue with Ephraim. <laughs> they weren't angry because they didn't get to fight. They were angry because they had no part in the victory following. Now, Gideon and his men aren't done yet. It's like, man, how long is this story? We're almost there. Gideon and his men aren't done yet. They're now in hot pursuit of the kings of Midian. Now, the princes have been killed, Zeb and Oreb, and now they're pursuing the kings. 
Some would say they're pursuing these men so that they might not get away and end up regrouping and the Midianites coming back to oppress Israel, maybe in a, in a worse way. So they're, they're going after these men to finish the job so that Israel is fully delivered from Midian. I think that's a plausible reason that they're going after them, but I think the passage reveals that there is perhaps something else at play. So let's take a look at chapter 8, beginning at verse 4. It says, Gideon and the 300 men came to the Jordan and crossed it. They were exhausted, but still in pursuit. He said to the men of Sukkoth, please give us loaves of bread, give, give some loaves of bread to the troops under my command, because they are exhausted, for I am pursuing Zeba and Zalmana, the kings of Midian. But the princes of Sukkoth asked, are Zeba and Zalmana now in your hands that we should give bread to you and your army? And Gideon replied, okay. <laughs> Very well. When the Lord has handed Zeba and Zalbana over to me, I will tear your flesh with thorns and briars from the wilderness. Whoa, Midian. Whoa, Gideon, calm down, man. And then he went from there to Penuel and asked the same thing from them. And the men of Penuel answered just as the men of Sukkoth had answered. And he also told the men of Penuel, when I return safely, I will tear down this tower. Now let's observe the contrast of how Gideon interacted with Ephraim and how he is now interacting with the men of Sukkoth and of Penuel. He diplomatically pacifies Ephraim, but he issues a violent threat against these men. I think Gideon is a little too hyped up at this point. Not only is he hyped up that he's won this victory, but he has already begun to forget that the victory had nothing to do with him and everything to do with God. Let's keep reading. Verse 10. Now Zeba and Zalmana were in Kakor, and with them was their army of about 15,000 men who were all those left of the army, of the entire army of the Ketamites. Those who had been killed were 120,000 armed men. 120,000 plus 15,000 gets us, what, to 135,000? And Israel started out with 32,000, and God said that was too many. Wow. Gideon traveled on the caravan route east of Noba and Jokbaha and attacked their army while they felt secure. Zeba and Zalmanah then fled, and he pursued them. He captured these two kings of Midian and routed the entire army. Gideon, son of Joash, turned from the battle by the accent of Herez. He captured a youth from the men of Sokoth and interrogated him. The youth wrote down for him the names of the 77 elders and of Sokoth, and he went to the men of Sokoth and said, Here they are. Here are Zeba and Zalmanah. You taunted me about them, saying, Are Zeba and Zalmanah now in your power that we should give you bread for your exhausted men? So he took the elders of the city and he took some thorns and briars from the wilderness and he disciplined the men of Sukkoth with them. He also tore down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city. Now this is the first incident of Israeli on Israeli violence in Judges. But this is certainly not to be the last. Remember, we're on a downward spiral as we journey through this book, and it only gets worse from here. Gideon is so angry. He is blinded by fury 
at the way these men, the men of these two cities, responded to his request for food, that he's now back to deliver the retribution that he threatened. Oh, you won't give me bread? Okay, I'll be back. Calm down, man. It's not that serious. It's just bread. Here we have the deliverer from the oppressors bringing about oppression upon the Israelites. This was not at all what God sent Gideon to do. But he's not done yet. He's so drunk with vengeance that as we read on, we see what happens. Let's read it, verse 18. He asked Ziba and Zalmanah, what kind of men did you kill at Tabor? They were like you, they said. Each resembled the son of a king. So he said, they were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if you had let them live, I would not kill you. Then he said to Jether, his firstborn, get up and kill them. The youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid because he was still a youth. Ziba and Zalmana said, get up and strike us down yourself, for a man is judged by his strength. So Gideon got up, killed Ziba and Zalmana, and took the crescent ornaments that were on their necks, that were on the necks of their camels. Now, did it make sense for them to take out the kings of their enemies, the kings of the Midianites? From a military standpoint, that, that makes sense. Uh, I can see that. But we see something else was at work behind the scenes. This wasn't just about a military victory. This just wasn't about subduing these kings. Gideon was getting payback for what Ziba and Zalmanah and the Midianites had done to his brothers. This retribution was very personal. And so much so that he wanted to humiliate the memory of these men by having his son, who was a boy, kill them. And so he is thrusting his firstborn son into a situation he has no business being in by telling him to execute these two men. But the boy is afraid. Sounds like somebody we know, right? Gideon. And the men call him out, Gideon, this is not a job for a boy to do. If you want to kill us, you need to do it yourself. And so he takes a sword and he kills them. Vengeance is what has been driving him. And what I want to remind us tonight about vengeance is what God tells us through the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 19. He says, friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. There are many times in our lives where we feel like we have been done wrong, that we have experienced an injustice, and in our heart of hearts, we want to get payback. We want vengeance. But what God says is that I am a righteous, just judge, and I will be the one who will repay. So leave room for me to do what only I can do. Now, let's see how Gideon's story wraps up. We're coming in for the home stretch here. Taking a look at verse 22 through the end of the chapter. Then the Israelites said to Gideon, Rule over us, you as well as your sons and your grandsons, for you delivered us from the power of Midian. Did Gideon deliver them? I thought God did. But Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Good answer, Gideon. Then he said to them, let me make a request of you. Everyone give me an earring from his plunder. Now the enemy had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. They said, we agree to give them. 
So they spread out a cloak, and everyone threw an earring from his plunder on it. The weight of the gold earrings he requested was 43 pounds of gold, in addition to the crescent ornaments and ear pendants, the, gold, the purple garments on the kings of Midian, and the chains on the necks of their camels. Gideon made an ephod from all this and put it in Ophrah, his hometown. Then all Israel prostituted themselves by worshiping it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and his household. So Midian was subdued before the Israelites, and they were no longer a threat. The land had peace for 40 years during the days of Gideon. Jeroboam, that is Gideon, son of Joash, went back to live at his house. Gideon had 70 sons, his own offspring. That's a lot of kids, by the way. Since he had many wives, his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he named him Abimelech. Then Gideon, son of Joash, died at a good old age and was buried in the tomb of his father Joash in Ophrah of the Abazarites. When Gideon died, the Israelites turned and prostituted themselves, there's that word again, by worshiping the Baals and made Baal Berith their god. The Israelites did not Remember the Lord their God who had rescued them from the hand of their enemies around them. They did not show kindness to the house of Jeroboam, that is Gideon, for all the good he had done for Israel. Now Gideon and his men have fought, secured the victory delivered by God, and they come home. And for being delivered, Israel doesn't respond in praise and worship to God But instead, they demand that Gideon be their king and that he would set up or institute the very first dynasty in Israel. Now, wisely, he responds that he will not be their king because God is. Good answer, Gideon. Because in this moment, what's happening is Israel's hearts are so idolatrous that instead of longing for the God who provides the deliverer, they long for the deliverer whom God provided. They wanted a false security. Gideon delivered a victory, but it was God's victory. And they've ignored this altogether. And because of their unwavering trust in Gideon, though he did the right thing by not becoming their king, by not ruling over them, he did something far, far worse. He followed in the way, not of God, but in the way of his father Joash, and he established a cult religion in Israel and based it out of his hometown in Ophrah. Israel was in no better shape at the conclusion of this saga because Gideon failed to point the people to their true deliverer, God. Though he declined to be their king, he sure began to live like one. When it describes Gideon making an ephod, that is, that is a garment that a, a priest wears. So even though he didn't step into the role as their king, he established this cult religion. He became the high priest of this false religion that Israel ended up prostituting themselves through. He had 70 sons by many wives. Who else can support that many kids and that many women except someone with a great deal of wealth? And he has a son by a concubine named Abimelech, whose name literally means my father is king. Though he was not king in Israel, Gideon was king of his own heart. And that was both Gideon and Israel's downfall. The land had peace for the next 40 years under Gideon, 
but it was not peace that comes from an abiding relationship with God. It was a false peace. And that false peace was clearly exposed when Gideon died. I want to invite you to listen to how one theologian by the name of George Schwab summarizes Gideon's story and issues a challenge to us. What does a spirit-empowered sinner look like? Gideon was a complex character who exhibited strong positive, strongly positive and strongly negative qualities. Although he questioned and doubted and needed signs and reassurances, he obeyed. But he obeyed feebly and under cover of darkness, fearing his neighbors. Hardly an Elijah confronting an Ahab with idolatry. But Gideon did cut down Baal's altar. Even after the spirit outfitted him, he again asked for signs. He finally got it, however, and led with full confidence. He even declared with no fear at all to Sukkoth that Yahweh would surely deliver the commanders of 15,000 Midianites they were pursuing. He didn't object when God reduced him from 22,000 men to 300. He was wise in his diplomacy with Ephraim. He made an illegal ephod that blurred Israel's focus on Yahweh's requirements of worship. And although he did accomplish the mission at hand, in the end, Israel was spiritually no better off. Why did he make a religious item? Why did he deal so harshly with Israelite towns? This ambiguity or two-sided character makes Gideon look a lot like us. We are baptized with the Spirit and empowered to fulfill the mission, the Great Commission, even while we err, sin, and engage in great folly. And yet, and yet, for all our shortcomings, the success of the mission is guaranteed. You see, the good news of the gospel today is that God chooses to use sinners like Gideon, sinners like us, to fulfill his purposes in the world that is and to usher in the world that is to come. And even our shortcomings will not short circuit his mission. The enemy has been defeated. The victory has been won already through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. He is our true deliverer. He is our warrior king. You see, the scene laid out for us in the beginning, beginning in Revelation chapter 19, verse 11, is one where Jesus is not like Gideon, coming with an army to fight with him. The scene painted in Revelation 19 is that though the armies of heaven are coming behind Jesus, they are not coming to fight with him, but they are coming to watch him secure the victory. Jesus doesn't need our help. He and he alone is the conquering king. He and he alone is our righteous judge. He and he alone is our deliverer. The greatest victory that he has secured for us is that over sin, death, and the grave. And so tonight we can rejoice in the work that Jesus has come to do and how God has done this in a surprising way. Would you pray with me?